Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to child sexual abuse. As well, there are details surrounding the death of a child. If this content affects you, help is always available by contacting Lifeline on 13 11 14. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, a former police inspector who helped expose historical institutional child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. They were there to protect and guide their flock and they prayed and abused and and then after that abandoned their flock. Troy Grant spent 22 years in the police force and would later go on to become the Deputy Premier of New South Wales. His career is diverse and has seen him take on some intense and confronting challenges. None more so than the investigation, arrest and prosecution of pedophile priest Vincent Ryan. During the investigation, I studied their canon law, so the law of the church. I read the Bible extensively. In all the interviews I had with them, I just threw it back in their face. The hypocrisy. We'll go into that case in further detail throughout the episode. But to start, we're going back to 1993, where Troy, a constable at the time, was posted to a small rural town in northern New South Wales. So stationed at Brewarrina in northwest New South Wales, uh, it's about an hour east of Burke. Population, about 3,000 people. In December of 93, very routine, just working a, a night shift with my partner, Jason Williams, who is still today a lifelong friend. Just called to a incident, the Bree Warren RSL Club, about 2.30 in the morning. The band was playing, the club was pretty well packed, so we we made our way into the club to uh, attend to this pretty routine call of, you know, someone having an argument or a fight or a, nothing of any significance, and uh, made our way into pretty much the middle of the club. Country clubs are you know, not as sophisticated in their design or whatever, everything sort of lumped in together, pool tables are very close to the pokies, very close to the bar dance floor and that sort of thing. So made our way to the end of the bar to see the complainant and it seemed that there was nothing much in it. So it could have been a, a furphy of a call just to lure us into the club. And uh, at that point we were approached by 12 individuals who uh, started just mouthing off at us and just being pretty unruly. We knew them all, those small communities, you, you know everyone in the place, uh, so they were easily identifiable. And uh, we are just conversing with them, trying to get them to calm down as they were getting more and more agitated, pretty much over nothing. But it became pretty apparent very quickly uh, that we'd been lured there. 
and you know, you, as a police officer, you do a lot of non-verbal communication and you can sort of communicate with your partner without saying a lot. Uh, we knew that it was uh, necessary to get us and that those 12 out of the very crowded area, the populated area, because we could just sense that there was trouble happening. And as we moved and shepherded them, for what of a better word, towards the door, one of the offenders threw a king hit and punched my partner in the, the back of the head and, and then a, a melee evolved and we were attacked by the 12 individuals who you know, threw haymakers and started kicking and it was just a brawl erupted. At one point, as we you know, were trying to defend ourselves and still try to get the group out the door into the street, an offender picked up a bar stool and cocked it over his shoulder and moved in to, to clout my partner and I stood in and took the blow from the stool to protect him and uh, our police shirts at those times, they, they had these epaulets on them. They're only fairly new at the time. And I'd lost a bit of balance. And one of the defenders then grabbed one of the epaulets and dragged me to the ground. And I landed on all fours. And then I got pinned to the ground. Uh, and then I got started to get uh, beaten, uh, kicked in the face and, and a fair thrashing. They tried to take my gun off me, grabbed my head and tried to pin me. And I just, you know, protected my firearm with all my might as you do when you're trained to do which then left me exposed I couldn't cover or protect any other part of my body or face uh, at that point so but I wasn't letting go of the firearm that offender admitted that they were trying to get my firearm in order to, to execute me so their intent was the most serious and uh, at that point I didn't see it but witnesses described in court another offender picked up a, a glass a schooner glass and smacked it onto the side of a table to make a shaft and stepped in and then uh, stabbed me in the side of the head near my temple and in that not only caused a wound in the side of my head and the side of my face that the glass shattering also then uh, caused significant lacerations to my to my left ear and eyebrow and other parts of my face at that point the assault continued my f partner was able to break free of the attack that was happening on him and uh, he was able to lift me up and we were able to uh, re-establish the, the momentum and uh, we settled it and moved it outside and, and the group dispersed fairly well, uh, not before tipping over our Land Cruiser, our troopie, our troop carrier, disconnecting the radios to not give us any communication. Then they made their way to the nearby river to arm themselves with um, branches and sticks to come back. So... UHF radio back in the day, very isolated areas, people in the club, uh, one of the policemen's wives, the sergeant's wife was a barmaid, so she was able to radio her husband who raised the alarm and reinforcements came and there was a bit more of a confrontation until uh, it was all settled and and uh, then we, we got on with um, dealing with the situation. Troy, you know, most most coppers that have that have worked on the street, you know, th that stage you've been in the job four or five years and whether you're in a regional area country town or in a, in a more urban built-up area task force wrap that we have in the city here in sydney they've got the you know the the riot squad and that type of thing uh, where uh, we know if something happens uh, to one or two police in a city like sydney or brisbane or even in a major center like newcastle backup's not too far away situation like this two three four five minutes there, there can be a lot of damage a lot of injuries inflicted on police without backup getting there yeah, without question. And yeah, no, 
Wi-Fi or mobile phones back in 1993 and being isolated remote, the telecommunications were UHF radios and single sideband radios. That was on the HF frequency. So that's what we, all we had. And, um, yeah, it's challenging. So it's a, it's a next level of danger, what you're exposed to, and I don't think it's probably ever properly appreciated that regional policing, country policing, that's the norm in many cases. And, you know, getting back up is often a significant time that's required. At 2.30 in the morning, you've got to get people out of bed who are fast asleep, dressed and kitted up in there. So, you know, two minutes feels like a lifetime when you're, you're getting attacked. And the attack may well have only lasted three or four minutes, but it felt like a lifetime. And I was convinced I was about to die that night. There was no doubt in my mind. Um, my partner, Jason, I've said my entire life, saved my life that night. I don't think if he wasn't able to get me up off all fours, uh, it was probably only a matter of time with the beating that I was uh, taking that would have lost control of my firearm and who knows what would have happened at the time. So Jason saved my life and suffered significant injuries himself as a consequence. So still great mates today and will be lifelong mates and just did what coppers do, you know, always have your mates back. Did you receive anything in the way of support after that? I would say now, who we are, what are we now, 2024, this was to occur over the weekend in Sydney. The officers involved would be taken off duty. It would almost be compulsory for them to go through some psychological programs and things such as that. I, I doubt that there was anything of that nature back in 93. No, no, there wasn't. Like The, the support I got from my commander, who was called a patrol commander then, was uh, Inspector Roger Smith. You know, he launched 20 cops from Burke, came over to take care of the arrests and the investigation of it all. After I was stitched up and you know, spent the night in observation, I went back to work and uh, helped with the investigation back to the scene and you know, head all wrapped up and bandaged and all the rest of it. Had a dislocated jaw and a fractured eye socket to, to boot. But it's just what you did. You'd, it was just a different era, a different time. But, yeah, the professional help definitely wasn't there and, uh, and I was probably in an era where it was just starting to emerge as a necessity, but I'm not sure the police, and I don't even think to this very day quite grasp or understand how to help each other, how to have those tough conversations. Certainly the improvements from 93 to the current day are significant and lots of great stuff being done. And I saw a lot of that investment when I ultimately became police minister and introduced a program called um, Back Up for Life, which focused on not only looking after those police that could no longer go on policing, uh, that they weren't just, you know, exited out the door and forgotten, implemented programs like Beyond the Badge to try and keep them connected and help them get work and, and live a healthy and prosperous life thereafter. But my father was in the police force for 30 years and uh, in 1977 he was kidnapped and tortured on the job. So I saw what he had gone through and suffered and, and he had zero help. And it was, if any complaint, it was like, you're a sook. You know, that was the sort of mentality in his era. So I saw him struggle from that incident throughout his life, particularly with alcohol, was his refuge to to deal with it and not much else. Things were a little bit better when um, it happened to me. I got some fundamental counselling sort of offerings and that sort of thing. But, and even then the culture was still, you know, I'm okay, it, you know another spoon of cement, move on. Uh, so it was a little bit offered then, but I got the support from my teammates and 
my colleagues, they're the ones that got me through, and my good mates in other emergency services who were good friends with, they're the ones that ultimately got me through. Troy, going forward to 1995, you were involved with the investigation of Vincent Ryan. Could you just speak of your involvement with this case? Yeah, sure. So I took a transfer into the Hunter after Bree Warner and uh, was stationed at Curry, but uh, had a yearning to uh, try criminal investigations. So I uh, went through the A-list program uh, at Cessnock Detectives and was working out of there. And an opportunity came up for a secondment into the Major Crime Squad Child Protection Investigation Team, CPIT. It's had many names over the years. And that was for six months based in Newcastle uh, on top of the Newcastle Police Station. So when in there, uh, I was trained in interviewing uh, juvenile victims. Uh, it was called the IROC, the Initial Response Officers Course Training back then, and uh, trained because there were so many youth victims out west. That's why I already had the training at the time and uh, so yeah I was in their uh, really busy office sadly we covered an area from Wyong to Tweed Heads so there was two offices for the North Region Crime Squad in in Chatswood and Newcastle sort of one crime squad split in two one day the the boss Sergeant Rhonda Mulligan just came up to me and said there's two guys here that need to speak to somebody and I think you're the right person and I was introduced to them went and sat in the room and, and heard their story and they told me about a sexual assault at Merriweather in the uh, in the church grounds by Father Vincent Ryan uh, back in 1975 and uh, this was 1995 so 20 years later and detailed in amazing detail what had happened to them and four other altar boys I took their statements and then began an investigation investigation then led to just more and more information coming out. A little bit of publicity uh, had followed and um, other victims then started to come forward. And suddenly I had a victim in from 1988 to 1994, one single victim that he'd um, preyed upon, as well as the, the Merriweather 75 crew. That was sort of two investigations that had joined. And... Um, I'd executed a search warrant as part of those uh, proceedings on a lot of the diocese premises and, this, and where the, the location of the offences as well. And my search warrant uncovered significant records of not only the knowledge of the church and the diocese of the offending, but detailed documentation of their cover-up of the crimes and the uh, relocation of the of the priest throughout the country. Then that gave me my third investigation for what was a misprison of a felony. It was a common law misdemeanor at the time. So uh, my time was running out. That <laughs> was all done in six months. Um, so I went and saw the boss who had only come in after I had been there and wasn't aware I was on secondment. He thought I was just part of the team. And I just asked him what he wanted me to do with the brief as to who to hand it to, etc. He just said, well, you're not going anywhere. So he then transferred me into the major crime squad and I continued on with the investigation and ultimately ended up with 35 victims 
over a continual period of 20 years of offending. And he ultimately got, uh, at the time, the longest sentence for a child sex offender in the state. It was surpassed not long after by the famous Dolly Dunn incident and many others since, which is good. And, uh, yeah, he got sentenced to 17 years, uh, reduced to 13 on appeal. And, uh, yeah, it was a an amazing um, investigation to, to get. Uh, back in the day, again, without very limited computer support, there was a lot of old school uh, investigation, a lot of, you know, beating the path and notes and a lot of approval to travel um, back then. So you had to type out your own transcripts of interviews and things. So it was a, a job that was all-consuming, I guess, and the victims themselves, you, know, you get a real attachment to them uh, to make sure that you're doing the best job you can to support them and get them the justice they deserve. So, yeah, it was a, a massive job. I had about 30 other briefs on my desk at the time as well, so it wasn't just one investigation I was doing. I was doing about continually about 30, and there was four of us in the team, and we all had the same workload. So, um, yeah, and it was amazing. The DPP um, refused to charge the uh, Monsignor who had orchestrated the cover-up, uh, which was very, very disappointing based on his age and age of the matter and some other justifications. I'm not sure I still agree with them or certainly still not happy with them. And uh, from that, that investigation incident, then you know the Pandora's box opened in the Hunter that there was hundreds of victims that then came forward, hundreds and hundreds of victims that identified, I think, a total of 100 priests, brothers or or lay people within the diocese of Maitland, Newcastle, and and that uh, ultimately underpinned a large part of the Royal Commission into institutional child abuse as well. So the normal investigation that just went massive, and and then I uh, ironically had a lot to do with the establishment of the Royal Commission when I was in Parliament. I was asked to to advocate for a Royal Commission, and uh, which I did. We had a special commission of inquiry in Newcastle about it as well. So it was like it went full circle in a lot of regards. Um, you know, being a, a constable first class doing this sort of investigation, not designated as a detective at the time. So great support from the Major Crime Squad team, particularly the, the boss, Detective Superintendent John Ewer, a, a really great man, great leader, who uh, supported me no end and great support from the Assistant Commissioner, uh, Peter Walsh at the time for the Northern Region, who knew me from my work and he was a great supporter of my work. He was transferred over to Northern Region and our paths crossed again and he was a wonderful support with this investigation and probably one of the finest police officers that New South Wales Police Force has ever had was uh, Assistant Commissioner Peter Walsh. Where do you start as a police investigator trying to investigate allegations of sexual crime that are 20 years old, historical sexual crimes? What are the nuts and bolts of that? How does that progress forward? Yeah, it's a great question because um, my investigation's been featured in a documentary initially on the ABC called Revelations that uh, Sarah Ferguson put together. Uh, we're in episodes one and two. During that program, it, I give access to Sarah of the brief, which I still have, and it's so difficult to prove a sexual assault, period. It's, it's one of the most difficult crimes to prove in a court of law. And it's all about corroboration and validation of the victim's story. So the more stuff you can get to corroborate, 
the better. So I, I thought outside the square. I got them to draw me mud maps, for want of a better word. And those additional uh, bits of corroboration with the drawings and the and the other evidence I gathered just made it a slam dunk, and, and this guy pleaded guilty to every offence. The average time frame of a victim survivor of child sexual abuse, the average time frame of that person coming forward to report their abuse, 25 years. Tragically, as you said, Troy, not only are cases of this nature notoriously hard to investigate and prove, you're often dealing with cases which are 20, 25 years, often even older than that. Would that be correct? I guess the difference with this type of case was that the offences themselves were so grotesque and so appalling that sadly, and this is the consequences of this, that the benefit you get is that there's nothing lost because those victims never forget and it's the smallest details are entrenched in their memory so they're able to provide those to you which is horrific to think about that those sorts of images and memories and recollections dominate their mind and that's what causes so much damage is how they get over it on top of the guilt they feel the shame the all those other emotions that they deal with and they should never feel any of those but it's quite understandable why they do so the passage of time does make it more difficult without question I, I think we were fortunate that also helped the victim civilly because I was able to provide all those documents of the church's knowledge to their lawyers for the civil proceedings and and they got paid as I understand it's all subject to non-disclosure and that but I understand it's the largest civil payout uh, in the country's history uh, for this type of offences as it should have been. So um, the passage of time is a very difficult thing to, to deal with, but in this sort of case, the the offending was so horrific and graphic that the imagery remained with the victims and they were able to provide that. Very difficult. I'm a stranger to these boys and the courage that they all have, I'm still, you know, this many years later, in awe of them, of the courage that they had that it took to come and and open up about that and expose themselves to more vulnerability. They're still great advocates and supporters for other victims to this day, and I'm still in contact with a lot of them, not not all of the 35, because you've got to be mindful that if you stay in contact with them, you're then still a constant reminder and that doesn't allow them to move on from it. But there's a few that um, rely on staying in contact with me to help them cope and that, so I, I do that uh, for them and, uh, and will do for as long as it's needed. But... Uh, I'm just, um, they're, they're heroes in my mind and I just admire them deeply. And I'm sure, Troy, that feeling would be reciprocated because they would see you as a hero also, I'm sure, in their mind in, in so much as that not only are these individuals up against an offender who abused them terribly, but they're up against an institution who historically has gone out of their way to protect and hide and move around these individuals. So not only are you up against, as a victim survivor of these crimes and as an investigator of these crimes, not only are you having to prove beyond reasonable doubt what these offenders did, but you're up against this massive, massive organisation and behind them, which has for decades gone to great lengths financially and otherwise to hide, protect and move these pedophile priests around. Yeah, and the ones involved of it in uh, the cover-up 
in my investigation, have been involved in many other cover-ups and are, are synonymous with this subject matter. And uh, the challenge I had was that uh, I was married in a Catholic church um, and married at the time. Um, my wife's family Catholic, so I knew the church as well. And trying to comprehend just the audacity not from a naive point of view, but those in a position were, you know, had a flock of people who were the Bible taught behavior, asked to repent and confess. And the Catholic Church, you know, makes, puts the onus on the parishioner to live a good life. And if you don't, they really come down on you. Well, from a, an emotional point of view, they put a lot of a guilt trip, for want of a better word, on you. Yet for them to be acting in this way is abhorrent. I'm not sure there's anything worse than what they did. Um, you know, they were there to protect and guide their flock and they prayed and abused and, and then after that abandoned their flock. They did everything in the, in the institution's interest, not in the victim's interest, even when the victims were known to them. And I think that's one of the hardest things for people to grapple with, victims, anyone investigating. So I, um, during the investigation, I studied their canon law so the law of the church, I, I read the Bible extensively. And uh, in all the interviews I had with them, I just threw it back in their face, the hypocrisy of it all. And the Monsignor Patrick Cotter, who was the architect of all the cover-up, and he was connected to other fathers who were connected through to George Pell and, and all sorts of things. So it went to that level. The uh, I've described him as just an absolute mongrel is one of the worst humans I've ever met because he, when I interviewed him, he was chastising me in the interview for having the audacity of challenging him or questioning him when the evidence was so blatant. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a vernacular to say, but if ever you wanted to spit on someone's grave, it's his, uh, just one of the worst humans I've ever met in my life and I've met a few. And that was the arrogance and and that just mystified you. Uh, you just couldn't get it. But I just kept throwing church law back at them through canon law, through the Bible. I quoted Matthew chapter 18 back to them that those that harm a child should be have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown to the depths of the sea. That's how serious it is if you harm a child. Yet, you know, they had the audacity to stand up on a Sunday and, and preach a sermon that they were contravening just to get some pleasure and self-gratification, which is appalling. Troy, look, uh, it, 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 there's very few who have gone that close to the coalface and 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 face that and and work within that and and the frustration and and the anger that must well up within yourself and others that work in that field. But goodness me, I, I guess tempered a little by the fact that, um, and it's it's a, it's a it's probably a better word for it, but the success that you had as a result of this investigation and the flow on investigations. And the Royal Commission, you must feel for yourself and others that, that had the involvement that you had some some feeling of um, uh, that, that you had made steps towards change and that hopefully moving forward, we hear and see and there's a hell of a lot less of this going on than what there was in the past where it was almost endemic through that institution. Yeah, it's uh, and this is completely honest with you. I, yeah, people and mates and stuff when it all became known and very very public in the media were saying to me, how do you not 
just in a room, thump these guys when you hear some of the atrocities they commit on. How do you hold back or how do you contain yourself from letting what's a very natural instinct to, you know, seek vengeance for, on behalf of others or retribution or something? And I said, you do that, you spoil it for the victims. That you, They'll get off, they eliminate any chance they've got of justice in whatever form of justice is out there. And I've taken that mindset throughout the whole involvement in this, whether it was the investigation itself or the later Special Commission inquiries or Royal Commissions. And I used to get asked to um, do a thousand media interviews or, you know, current affairs and 7.30 reports. And they all wanted to tell this story. And, and I said, no, I, it's not my story, you know. Um, and it wasn't, I only participated in the revelations one because that was the victims asking me to. And I've always made sure it's about them. So the feedback they give me is um, they're grateful. So they've asked me to participate in revelations. I check with them um, before I've done this podcast to make sure they're happy, and uh, which they are because uh, they just see it as a way to expand the awareness of uh, what's out there and, and get others thinking about supporting victims of child sexual assault, etc. So again, you know, they're heroes to me because they're selfless despite what's happened to them because they just want it not to happen to anyone else and uh, that's what drives them and uh, and that's the only reason I sort of talk about these investigations now is because they asked me to for that, that outcome. It's uh, I'm pleased for them that there are big progresses that, that have been made in many areas in, in this response. It's certainly a far away from finished or as good as it can be. And Troy, on a personal level, you know, we, we spoke earlier about that exceedingly violent confrontation in that RSL club uh, in Barorina that, as you say, it, it stays with you, it, it haunts you, it's something that never quite leaves you. Could I suggest that working in investigations such as the one that you've been highlighting, that was 1995, now this is close to 30 years ago, you would carry the weight of that still close to 30 years on, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I, I do and I don't. Um, so I didn't have children at the time. I have children now. So I think the weight changed, if that makes sense. So I was young, keen, enthusiastic. I just threw myself into it and I was just single-minded, focused to get these guys the best outcome. And I didn't think about it in any way about how it was affecting me or impacting me. So there was none, zero thinking of that. I I just couldn't. I was in a bit disbelief of what I was learning and seeing and hearing during the investigation itself. I guess the um, the impact and the of the enormity of it all. Sort of, I felt it after I had my own kids, and just you get get an extra sense of protection around them, and you feel a bit more vulnerable now. How am I going to protect? And I think your your behaviours can change, and and the kids had no idea why I probably was that way for a while, and. My wife um, probably knew and understood, but it's hard to explain to them as kids as to why you don't let them do something or you're extra cautious. But I still sent them to uh, Catholic school. They're both baptised Catholics. And, and a lot of my mates have said, how the hell, after all you know, how can you have anything to do with the church? And I said, well, it was individuals that did the wrong thing on behalf of the church. There wasn't the church itself and you know, we were in, in the bush and the Catholic education system superior to the public one at the time where I was transferred and had to do the right thing by my kids and give them the best opportunities. I guess that then only elevated the, 
the level of angst you think and protection that you put around your own kids. So I think it's had a bigger impact then. And uh, and just seeing the uh, victims now and if you can catch up with them for a beer and stuff like that, just to see the fact that they have survived and they're doing okay, just makes you proud of them. So, so you get a bit of pride out of that, um, that they're, they're going okay and you may well have had a little bit to do with that. Troy, 2005, there was a case that you were involved in, the death of a child who, who choked on a toy. Can you walk us through that case? Yeah, and uh, as, as most listeners in, um, in policing history know that anything you do with a child of, um, involves any tragedy is probably the hardest thing that you have to uh, do in the role of you know, you deliver a death message to a parent about a child that's really traumatic and really difficult. The sexual assault of children, obviously horrific, as we've spoken about. The case that um, I'm talking about now was the death of a nine-year-old in Tenterfield, something that uh, just had massive ramifications um, on a whole community uh, because it was so innocuous in, in, in what had happened and could so easily have happened to any one of the children there or in, in the country or throughout the world, to be frank, was... Um, little boy with his brother playing at home on, on a weekend with his mother preparing them lunch and they were playing a game that was a, a cheap version of um, the game Mastermind. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the game, but it's it's got a, a table or a board made of plastic and it's got these little coloured pins that you put into holes, about four or five holes, and you've got to guess the code at the other end by lining up the pins in the correct sequence of colours. And uh, he was playing with that and, and he was just being silly as nine-year-old boys are and he put it, one of the pieces in his mouth, just in his teeth and was showing his mother and she did what mothers do, said, you know, spit that out, don't put that in your mouth and she reached to to grab it off him and as he turned, he inhaled to run and, and he swallowed this piece which got stuck just above his lungs in, in his throat and, uh, yeah, he choked to death. Um in his family home, paramedics arrived very swiftly, but uh, did all they could and and uh, just couldn't save him. Uh, I was just on duty a very, very normal day and was called to the Tenerfield Hospital uh, in relation to the incident and went into the emergency room where the nine-year-old was, um, was, was there deceased uh, with his parents in understandable, uncontrollable um, grief. And uh, I guess this case sticks out for me for for a couple of reasons was that cops will know and listeners will know when you go to these sort of situations, you don't know what to say. You don't know what the right words are. You know, you go to something sad, you go, how are you doing? Well, the answer's pretty obvious. I'm not doing real well. And I really was lost for words, but I had to make an introduction to the mum to start getting some details for the investigation and I said, is, is there anything I can do? And she turned around and just started screaming uncontrollably and, and thumping me and punching me, saying, bring my son back, bring my son back. And and it was confronting. So at that point, I just, uh, you know, I was always going to do the right job and that sort of stuff. But I just got an extra level of determination, uh, experiencing that grief to get to the bottom of it. And the investigation itself was pretty straightforward so far as how it happened, why it happened. Uh, but in the bush, um, when you do the post-mortems, 
travelling doctor is usually the qualified one and the doctor came up from uh, Armadale to do the post-mortem and we have wardsmen, or we did have wardsmen back in the time that would assist the coroner in the performance of the of the post-mortem. Uh, but the local wardsman had had a lot and he, he just wasn't up to the job and uh, being a child, he just uh, couldn't do it. So as has happened throughout history, particularly in the country, is, is police step in and do the job. So I, I was the wardsman that assisted the the doctor to uh, carry out the post-mortem, which um, that was a confronting uh, part of the investigation, but I just focused my mind as to put whatever difficulties you I was feeling dealing with it to getting an answer as to why this um, happened, uh, why they weren't able to dislodge this piece of toy, etc., and uh, and the where it was. And once we did the postmortem, the autopsy, and, and, and opened it up, we found um, that the device itself or the, the toy, the piece, uh, where it was lodged, it just couldn't move because of what it was made of and the nature of of the tube that led into the lung. Was, the body comes down and it branches off into your two lungs um, like a Y and it got stuck in one of the lungs and that's where he suffocated, blocked the, blocked the airway. So we, we extracted that and, and sent it away and I and I'm not sure why, but I, I just asked for some additional tests to be done on the product itself and and ultimately came back and had to prepare a report for the coroner and for a coronial hearing. Uh, but I didn't do it just as to the cause of death and here, there. I actually expanded the investigation as to how do I get this product off the shelves so at least we're eliminating something that's dangerous away from sale. And this was a toy that... You wouldn't buy at a major retail. You'd buy Mastermind there. This is one that you'd buy at a cheap shop, the $2 shops, etc. So just investigated two-pronged to explain the death, but also then to build a case to get this product removed from the shelves and to uh, launch an investigation into uh, how it happened to stop it ever being imported again and, and products of this type. And really happy to say that uh, the, the coroner supported me and made significant recommendations in that regard, and ultimately the product is no longer available in Australia. You, you, you can't buy this thing. So hopefully, you know, some lives may have been saved or at least not placed in jeopardy, and it just shows that, for me, a learning out of that was that you can do more in the police than your ability, if you think outside the square, to um, have a bigger impact or try and, you know, do more in the prevention space, not just deal with the, do the report, put it and get the job done, tick a box sort of thing, just look what else can be done, what else can you do to contribute to um, public safety and uh, that's why that investigation sticks in my mind. Troy, the stories that you've told, the experiences that you've had, there will be so many listening that will take so much from it. I want to thank you so much for coming along but also very sincerely thank you for the 22 years of service to the folks of New South Wales, 20 of which was in those regional towns and, 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 and small country areas in New South Wales. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to uh, to have a chat to you, Troy. Thanks for dropping in. Hey, very welcome. Really appreciate the time and I wish you all the very best and it's been a pleasure to serve. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. Link Kelly.